You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, as you can see, we're talking about miracles, miracles, miracles as we go through the book of Acts. And so I got to tell you, like, this gets a little controversial because there's something that we have a hard time wrestling with. It's like, what do we do with miracles in the Bible? What do we do with miracles today? Like, do they still happen? These are questions we got to wrestle with. And I'm going to tell you about a couple miracles that I've seen in my lifetime. On November 2nd, 2016, my beloved Chicago Cubs won the Baseball World Series. It was unbelievable. Prior to November 2nd, 2016, I had reconciled myself to living my entire life without seeing the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. Like, this is huge for me. Like, I would come home from school every single day. I would, like, run home because we walked um, to get home. Like, I would hope for a rain delay so that I can catch more innings during the Cubs, and I would just pray to God, would they win the World Series this year? And at some point, you just kind of resigned yourself. You're like, it ain't happening. And it's interesting, this particular, you know, miracle, air quotes here, um, still is verifiable. Like, I could still watch the game online. You could say miracles do happen. If you're not a Chicago Cubs fan, you probably don't care. I understand. I realize, though, the Cubs World Series win is technically not a miracle, but for every Cub fan, it sure seems like one. Perhaps you've prayed for a miracle win before Christmas. You're like, I got to go shopping, get that last minute gift at the mall, and it feels like everyone in the 515 area code descended upon your location. And so, what do you do sometimes? You're like slowly creeping up and down the aisles, like, Lord, I just want a spot. And then finally, someone kind of pulls out, and you're like, and you really hope that spot is really close to the door because it's freezing, right? Is that a miracle? People pray for miracles when a close friend or a member of the family is found to be terminally ill. When a sickness is terminal, we pray for a miracle. When the doctors say, there's nothing we can do, we pray to God. As a pastor, I've been in numerous hospital rooms praying to God for a miracle. In our vernacular, the word miracle is used a bit flippantly and kind of indiscriminately. Um, It's used without a true sense of what it means for a miracle to happen. Even from these brief examples, it's clear there is a massive difference between the miracle of the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series and praying for a friend with a terminal illness. Before looking at the details of today's passage, which Brooks just read, I want to take time to explain what is a miracle and why it's significant to the Christian faith. So what is a miracle? J. Gresham Machem has said this about miracles. The conception of the supernatural, so think God, is closely connected with that of a miracle. A miracle is the supernatural manifesting itself in the external world. Here's one more thorough definition of miracle that I found helpful, and I hope it's helpful for you. It's from Max Turner. 
it is an extraordinary or startling observable event. So you can kind of see it with your eyes. And he says, number two, it, it cannot reasonably, reasonably be explained in terms of human abilities. I'm going to call that naturalism here in a minute. Or other known forces in the world. There's another, another quali- quali- qualification. It is perceived as a direct act of God. And number four, it is usually understood to have symbolic or sign value. So it's pointing towards something else or someone else. So, we can conclusively say, to my chagrin, the Chicago Cubs isn't a miracle by this definition, as much as I felt it. Your parking spot that providentially opened up for you at the mall is not a miracle. A miracle is extraordinary. It cannot be explained by human abilities. It happens directly from God and oftentimes is a sign of some sorts. With all this said, according to Christianity... There is nothing arbitrary about a miracle. As Machem says, a miracle is not an uncaused event, but an event that is caused by the very source of all other order that is in the world. So we have everything ordered by God. That's what, you think through creation, you work through the Bible, you realize God is a God of order, and, and God breaks in and does something, we can call that a miracle. It is dependent, Machen continues, altogether upon the least arbitrary and the most firmly fixed of all things that are, namely upon the character of God. In other words, miracles are not an accident. Because a person cannot explain a miracle does not mean it doesn't exist. Further, miracles are completely dependent upon God. Generally speaking, this explanation of a miracle is not accepted by our culture. Like, if you're going to walk down the street and do you believe in miracles, you're probably going to be like, you probably get a weird look first because you're like, why are you asking? But then if you really press something, you're like, no, nah, I don't believe that. I can't explain it. You will hear that if your science book can't explain it, then it must not be true. While I certainly do not think science and miracles are at odds with one another, it is common that science is used to leverage itself against miracles, especially miracles that are recorded in the Bible. Miracles happen by the God who created the world, who is also distinct from his creation, yet he continues to uphold his creation. What might be completely unexplainable to our mind makes complete sense in the mind of God. And I think it's important to note my propensity, your propensity, and really mankind's propensity to act like God when attempting to explain the unexplainable. And when something can't be explained, oftentimes it's kind of like summarily dismissed. I can't explain it, therefore it must not be true. When we do that, when Sean Powers does that, guess what I'm doing? I am oftentimes acting like God. The Bible is replete with miracles. Have you ever combed through the entire Bible and considered all the miracles? Uh, here are just a few from the Old Testament, right? Uh, we got like 10 plagues against Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Boom, right there, we got 10 miracles. 
the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 14, manna from heaven so God's people could eat while wandering in the wilderness, Exodus 16, Balaam's donkey talks. I, I don't get that one, especially. We got a donkey that speaks, huh, Numbers 22. The river Jordan divided for God's people, Joshua 3, and we can just kind of continue to go down the Old Testament and we're going to see more miracles. I think you all get the point. Of course, we can look at miracles in the New Testament here, just a few. Jesus, Jesus changed water into wine, John 2. Jesus cured the noble man's son, John 4. Jesus allowed for a great catch of fish when all his disciples were saying, we can't catch anything. And Jesus was like, well, I got, go throw that net in one more time. Guys, you really sure, Jesus? Yeah, trust me. Okay. Paul fish comes in. Luke 5. Jesus cast out an unclean spirit in Mark 1. Jesus heals a leper in Mark 1. Jesus stills a storm in Matthew 8. And the list goes on. Why do I go through all that? Let me ask this question. This is why I go through all that. Have you ever paused to think about all the times when something happens which defies naturalism and rationality in the Bible, like you, you get to something, and you're like, "I, how did that happen?" You ever, your faith, Christian, hangs on the idea that miracles took place. Let me say that again: your faith hangs on the idea that miracles took place. What I've said is not an exaggeration at all. You can underline it, highlight it, put an exclamation point behind it. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is a miracle. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a miracle. There is not a natural explanation for the incarnation and resurrection, but if you do not believe in these miracles, you do not believe in Christianity. Sure, one might say that the Bible, especially the New Testament, might be easier to believe if it had no miracles at all, right? Many have tried to, to write out all the miracles in the Bible, especially the New Testament. Uh, perhaps the most famous or infamous example is from Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States. Historians have discovered a particular project Jefferson took on after his presidency with a razor and a scissors. Jefferson carefully cut small squares out of the Bible. The passages in the New Testament that taught good morals were taken out. That's what, that's what Jefferson wanted. So he's got his exacto knife and he's like, ah, this is a good teaching. We can apply this. This is another good teaching. We can apply it. So he took it out. Any miracles... And the resurrection of Jesus Christ were left. Any notion of divinity, of the divinity of Jesus, was also excluded by Jefferson. So Jefferson took all the squares, which he found acceptable, and then he pasted it into his own book. The project became known as the Jefferson Bible. You can go look it up. You can probably look up a copy online. The Jefferson Bible. Now, for his entire life, Jefferson wrestled with religious questions when it came to Jesus. 
problem is he could, not, he could only accept him as a great moral teacher. In Jefferson's mind, Jesus was not, was not a faith healer, and he definitely wasn't a savior. I admit uh, the New Testament without miracles would be, in a sense, far easier to believe. right? Because you can kind of wrap your mind around it rationally. Oh, this makes sense. This, this moral teaching is good. I can apply that. But here's the problem. A New Testament without miracles would not be worth believing. Christianity without miracles would not be worth believing. Without the miracles, the New Testament would contain an account of a holy man, not a perfect man. Without miracles, we should have a teacher. With miracles, you have a Savior. Machem. You see, if you abandon miracles, then you abandon the gospel, which also means you abandon the gospel message and the gospel mission, which has been laid out in the books of, book of Acts as we've gone through this series. So the book of Acts, now slightly transitioning here, with all that kind of as a prelude, the book of Acts is remarkable because it presents a worldview, a perspective of seeing the world, a way to see the world, where God continues to demonstrate his sovereignty over all creation. God breaks in and defies naturalistic explanations of the world. And being consistent with how I interpret the Bible, I think God continues to break in and defy our natural explanations of the world. A few questions I have asked myself after reading this passage is, that is Acts 9, why are these, these particular miracles in here? Like Brooks read it, there were two. Why are they in here? Why did Luke, the author of the book of Acts, see the need to record the healing of Ananias and the healing of Tabitha? In light of the overall theme of Acts, What do these miracles have to do with God advancing his kingdom on earth, which is the overarching theme in Acts? God on mission to advance his kingdom. All good questions I plan to answer. What we can say without question is that miracles matter. That's kind of what I tried to tell you up front right away, an apologetic for miracles. They must matter. We see in God's word that Miracles oftentimes meet an immediate spiritual need and point toward a greater spiritual reality. I still think this is the case in the 21st century. In the previous two sermons on Acts, we saw how Paul was saved, and then we began to see how Saul moved toward being on a mission with God to proclaim the gospel to nations. In verse 32, which is where we're starting, we pivot back to Peter's ministry. So, beginning of Acts, we're talking about Peter, 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 Saul gets saved, now we're kind of back to Peter. In particular, Peter is at the center of these two miracles. And I want to know why these miracles are included. I am curious because we have always seen how miracles are connected with an intentional preaching of the gospel. Remember in early, Peter's early ministry. He's preaching, then there's a miracle, or there's a miracle, and then he's preaching. Now, while it's likely Peter was sharing the gospel with non-Christians in Acts 9, the focus of his ministry is actually on the church. 
This is hinted at by the use of the word hagias, which is Greek for the word saints in the English. In both geographical locations where we find Peter, uh, we see that Peter is visiting these saints. He is visiting other disciples of Jesus Christ. Again, a clear distinction from how Peter's ministry began to what we're seeing right now. Why do I think this is relevant? I think it is relevant because ministry is more than preaching. What I'm not saying is that preaching isn't important. Every week I spend a tremendous amount of hours preparing for a sermon because it is important. What I am saying is that there is more to ministry than only preaching. It seems from verse 32, Peter was making the rounds to care for saints throughout Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. He was going from town to town visiting Christians in order to care and encourage them. And of course, along the way, there are what you call today hospital visits. The first is with a man named Aeneas who lived in Lydda. Lydda is 20, 20, 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. We don't know for sure, but it appears Aeneas was born healthy, but for the last eight years he had been paralyzed. He can't move. We don't know what caused his paralysis, but basically for eight years he could not get out of bed. We read of a similar situation in Acts 3, which we've gone through, where Peter is going to go preach at the temple. He's walking by, about to enter the temple, and there's this lame beggar who had been there basically his whole life. And Peter heals him. And then we see something similar here in Acts 9. Here's what Peter says in Acts 9. Aeneas, Jesus Christ, heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately Aeneas rose. R.C. Sproul has said that this verse can be translated, Jesus Christ, at this very moment, is healing you. Peter spoke similar words in Acts 3 to that lame beggar. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In both situations, Peter states where the power of healing comes from. It's not from him. It's from Jesus. It is true, the power and authority that Jesus had during his earthly ministry had been given to his apostles and all disciples of Jesus Christ. However, we see that the miracle took place by Peter pointing to someone greater than he. We don't read, and this is what I said in Acts 3, we don't read, in the name of Peter, rise up and walk. We read, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Peter points to the one who ultimately holds all authority and power, which means the one who gives authority and power to perform miracles is able to, is able to take away authority and power. He is sovereign over all of that. What else do we read from the first part of this passage? Aeneas is told to take up his bed or consider it like a mat because he no longer needs a permanent place to reside. He has been healed. Here's another audacious statement that I've made previously. It applies here. It's a statement that brings the gospel to bear upon the healing of Aeneas. Here it is. Aeneas never deserved to be healed. He, like all of us, deserved worse. God didn't have to heal him. 
Because of sin, none of us deserve healing, whether it's through modern medicine or a miracle. What the lame beggar experienced and what we experience every single day as you went out your door and that cold breath hits your mouth and you took it in, that is an act of God's overwhelming mercy. This is mercy. What we deserve is to be paralyzed. What we deserve is the wrath of God through whatever means God deems appropriate. But this is the beauty of the gospel. No one likes to hear that part, but it's true. But listen to this. This is the beauty of the gospel. God is merciful. God withholds from us what we deserve. I would hope Aeneas began to understand with deeper appreciation God's mercy when he was healed. I hope Aeneas understood God's grace when he was healed. I hope Aeneas realized he deserved far worse than just being a lame man. Now, I've heard it said that if you have enough faith, you could heal or be healed by someone. If you just had enough faith, you've heard that before? I have. In which I would respond and say, yes, we must have faith, pray in faith, plead with God to heal in faith. However, our works and faith are always in submission to God's sovereign, predetermined will. Catch that? We must always have the right perspective of who God is and who we are. Again, this goes back to what I said earlier. We constantly are trying to be God. We must not do that. Our faith and our works, especially when it comes to praying for someone's healing, is always in submission to God's sovereign and predetermined will. There's another result of Aeneas being healed. Some of the residents in Lydda and a nearby town, Sharon, turned to the Lord, verse 35. So what do we learn from this? Everything points back to Jesus. Everything points to Jesus healing the most significant part of a person's life, the human heart. Like, that's huge. The most significant part of you being healed is not your cold or your sickness. It's your soul. Ponder this for a moment. If Aeneas had, was, was healed, after he was healed, excuse me, he suddenly died. Let's say he was hit by the road by like a horse and buggy or something, would his healing be in vain? It's a hypothetical question, but I'm trying to make a point. His life would not be in vain. Why? Because his healing from Jesus, which was an act of God's mercy, resulted in real people being saved by Jesus. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 14, 17 is so true. Though our outer self is wasting away, it's wearing away, Yet our inner self is being renewed day by day. The uh, healing of Aeneas is truly remarkable. And apparently, the word of Aeneas' healing made its way to Joppa, about 12 miles away. In Joppa, Joppa, a follower of Jesus like suddenly died. So we're not talking about a lame beggar, we're talking about death. Her death appears unexpected 
and it had an, un, had an effect on the Christian community in Joppa, especially on the widows in the community. The woman who died is Tabitha in Aramaic. That's Tabitha. We also read this name Dorcas, which is her other name kind of in the Greek. In Acts 9, it says Tabitha was full of good works and acts of charity. We can glean from this passage that Tabitha gave herself to helping those in need through her skill of sewing, verse 39. She especially directed her care toward widows in the community. As a result, many in the community love Tabitha. Tabitha is an example of how women throughout centuries of church history have shown acts of kindness and mercy to those in the church. Tabitha is a sister in the faith many do not know about, but we would do well to remember. We can imitate Tabitha as she imitated Christ by taking care for those in need. The love for Tabitha was seen through urgency. Upon her death, two men were sent to Peter, urging him, please come with us without delay, verse 38. So we got 12 miles to Lydda, then 12 miles back to Joppa, which is about a marathon. So if you're a marathon runner, you get that distance. You can make that happen. In Peter, the friends of Tabitha still had hope God could save Tabitha's life. When Peter arrives in Joppa, he finds Tabitha's body like in an upper room, which is not uncommon for structures in the first century. He had a lower room, and there's kind of this upper room that was a gathering point. Now, the widows were present and were asked by Peter to leave. We don't know why. But we, what we do read next is Peter kneeling in prayer. Here's that passage again. But Peter put them all outside, all these widows who were grieving, and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Whether it was going to be the will of the Lord to heal Tabitha or not, Peter's response is spot on. He prayed to the Lord with the faith given to him by the Lord and he continued to trust the Lord in that moment. Now, what makes this healing a bit different from others is that it's obviously a resurrection. Tabitha died, now she's alive. Even by the Bible standards, resurrections are rare. Not unprecedented, but rare. Tabitha's story is similar to two others. The first is in 1 Kings 17. In 1 Kings 17, 1 Kings 17, we read about how a woman's son had become ill and died when Elijah the prophet was visiting her. In the course of grieving, this woman says, What have you against me? He's talking to Elijah, O man of God. Why'd you bring this upon my life? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And then Elijah steps in to pray to the Lord for the boy to be healed, to, to live. It says in 1 Kings 17, the boy's breath was given back to him. The mother, obviously relieved, ends up saying, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The miracle helped the woman to see, that the, hand, see the hand of God, and that the truth spoken by Elijah was something that she could receive. A second miracle similar to what we read in Acts 9 is found in Matthew 5. This time it was Jesus who performed the miracle as all of his disciples looked on. In Mark 5, a man named uh, Jairus approaches Jesus. His daughter, daughter Talitha, not Tabitha, but Talitha, has died. One constant difference in the name. But Jairus did not give up hope. 
He believed Jesus could heal her. When Jesus arrived in the room of Talitha, we read, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. In Mark 5, we read Talitha kumi. In Acts 9, we read Tabitha kumi. In both stories, the girl arises by the sovereign healing will of God. For both Talitha and Tabitha, their healing was only a foretaste of heaven because guess what? They were going to die. As it is with the healing of Aeneas, we read what the miracle was pointing to, Jesus. This miracle helped others see that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. It caused faith to grow. In verse 42, it states plainly, many believed in the Lord as a result of observing and seeing this miracle. Obviously, when when a miracle takes place, the glory of the Lord is on display, but there's so much going on in these passages. When God intervenes and a miracle takes place, God is bringing about healing and restoration. When a person is saved because of the truth of the gospel, a greater healing and restoration has taken place in the human heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 rings true here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It is especially true of the various resurrection miracles of the Bible. All the miracles of raising from the dead are, in a real sense, signs, pointers to the one who has power even over death And he is himself the resurrection and the life for everyone who would believe and trust in him. Miracles not only point to a present spiritual reality, but a future physical restoration of all things. So we have the present, what's going on right here. But these signs, these symbols, what are they pointing to? C.S. Lewis said that miracles are a reversal in which the effects of sin and the fall are reversed and a glimpse of the new creation is given. So what C.S. Lewis is saying is like, when this happens, you can see something. You can sense something. There's more going on than a person's body being healed. When you come across a miracle in the Bible, you can remember what it truly signifies. Miracles are signposts put down by God to remind us of a day when all things will be made new. I'm going to read you a lengthy passage in Revelation 21. Here's what miracles can remind us of, whether we're talking about what we find in Scripture, whether you're kneeling down at a friend or family member's bedside in a hospital room. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first time, heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have, his, have this inheritance. And I will be their God, and he will be my son. You can see where things are pointing to. I'll end with these thoughts about miracles. Strands of Christianity want to remove miracles from the Bible, and they certainly cannot conceive of a God who is still working in miracles of our day. On the other extreme are strands of Christianity that take a miracle and point it in on the person performing the miracle. Both extremes are rejected by the Scriptures. What can guide our understanding of miracles? We can remember that the foundation of our faith is because of miracles. Miracles reveal the power and authority of the one Jesus who is sovereign over all. All miracles point to the day when every tear will be wiped from the eye. Death shall be no more. There will no longer be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things will pass away. Because of miracles, we hope in a day to come where Jesus will return and make all things right. He will make all things new. Let's pray.